You're listening to The Nerve, an English at WIT podcast. delighted to welcome our first ever special guest to the podcast, the award-winning poet Dr John Ennis, who travelled down from Westmead a couple of weeks ago to run a poetry workshop with our students and we recorded a podcast then and it all went pear-shaped and he has he has come back down to us. He's so, so good. John has a PhD in English literature and an honorary doctorate from Memorial University in Newfoundland. He has published over 20 books of poetry, has won the Patrick Kavanagh Poetry Award as lo- along with many others and was the head of the School of Humanities here at WIT until 2009. But one of his proudest mm. achievements, of course, that, well, in our opinion anyway, um, has been producing our fa- fantastic colleague, Dr. Fiona Ennis, who also joins us in studio today. And Fiona has continued on the family interest in poetry and philosophy and brings them together in her teaching on the English programme here. So first of all, thank you so much to the two of you for making yourselves available again to come and talk to us. You are so good. Um, Technology is my enemy, uh, but poetry is our friend. So let's talk about that instead. Um, So, John, something that um, really struck me about the workshop that you did with our students um, was the fact that you see poetry as um, as a continuation of music and vice versa. Um, So that, you know, your focus on the lyric, I think, was a really nice thing for our students to to witness, that it was this kind of elitist notion of poetry is broken down and there's more of an egalitarian approach brought in there. And the fact that the the students kind of realised that maybe they know more poetry than they thought they did and that maybe poetry is more accessible than they thought it was. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your approach um, and, and your consideration of poetry in that way, uh, poetry and music together. Yeah, well, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I think it was Pound who said that um, there's a very close relationship between music and poetry. And um, poetry always moves in some sense through the language of music. And the further it moves away from that, the poorer it is. Mm. So uh, I found that a useful dictum. And, of course, poetry itself um, grew out of the chant, you know, around the the fire, around the tribal fire, and later on in the halls of the bards. um, The words were chanted to music um, and accompanied uh, on the harp, for instance, in the old Irish bardic system. So poetry um, and music, or the chant, um, are as old as the hills, really. Mm. And <clears throat> if one comes down to today's world uh, and the world of music and the world of music for young people, a lot of it is um, lyric music. Uh, and that's as well, of course, very strong in Elizabethan times with the poetry of Campion and, and others. Uh, there were lyrics that were sung so I find it uh, just refreshing today just to listen to poetry in motion in music. Yeah. And I that suppo- for me is the most interesting aspect of it. Sorry to talk across, me, across you there. Um, so I, I presume you were delighted that Bob Dylan, where you got the, the Nobel, Nobel Prize for Literature, were you thrilled when you heard that? Or, or what did you think? Do you like Bob Dylan? Oh, yeah. Well, he's been one of the marvels um, of the modern lyric. You know, he just has... Um, 
uh, you know, volume after volume after volume of um, marvellous hits, you know. So it, it was great to see that. I mean, the man himself was so self-effacing that he had difficulties with accepting uh, the prize. So it's nice to see that as well, uh, that the thing is the music. Yes. And everything else is a distraction. Any award that you get, you don't really deserve it. It's a gift that you have. Mm. And then you exercise the gift for as long as you can and hope people will connect <laughs> with yes. what you're saying or singing. <clears throat> yeah. And we had a really interesting chat, didn't we, about um, Ed Sheeran? <laughs> because I was kind of saying, mm, I don't know, do I rate Ed Sheeran's lyrics? And you were saying, well, now, you know, if you can connect with it and it moves you, then surely it's it's valuable. And, you know, I think a lot you know, of the students were on your side there, John. Yeah, well, I think um, <laughs> once you start um, putting music to words, there's no restriction on what you can or can't do. So you can take a line that if you speak it, you speak it. But if you sing it, you can elongate it to the vowels, you know, forever. Mm. If you want and come back to it and repeat it and repeat it. So this is the marvellous freedom of music. And OK, if you look at Ed Sheeran's lyrics on the page, they seem all over the place. But not when a man sings because yeah. he orders them in a new medium. Yes. Of the song. And that's really both what I was trying to say, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I know that one of our students actually showed you one of his poems, which I just think is lovely because, the, as you, you know, that approach is, is really refreshing, I think, to students like that who are writing themselves and who might have been terrified. I mean, I know I would never have shown somebody any, you know, a poem of mine or anything mm. like that. I would have been too, too shy. And I just loved the fact that he came to you and showed you this poem, you know. Yeah, well, I think that's so terribly important um, for young people. I know when I was growing up a, a teenager, uh, I thought all poets were dead. You know? Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, belonged <laughs> in the far past or the near past or whatever. And then it was a marvel um, to hear of Kavanagh. Uh, you know, writing and uh, the world that he wrote out of, I was close to mm. in my, my young days and the world he was describing. And of course, the world later of Seamus Heaney, I could empathise immediately with those. So these were real uh, living mortals, you know, masters. Yeah. Um, and uh, the day that uh, Kavanaugh died, I thought my world had <laughs> ended, you know. Yes, yeah. So it was close uh, like that, you know. And um, I think it's important as well that uh, young people who are into writing poetry, that they look around and uh, they buy the work of poets or musicians that they like. Mm -hmm. And then they keep listening to their songs or their poems. Yeah. Um, and I remember I did that when I was a teenager as well. I was a great fan of anthologies. And there was a marvellous run of Penguin anthologies, the Cohen anthologies. Edward Cohen, he put them together. So um, it was marvellous to read of New Zealand verse or Australian verse or it could be Chinese or it could be South American. You know, there were marvels coming up all the time from mostly contemporary writers who were translated into English. Now, I had Spanish, so that helped. I could read the poem in the original. So I found a rapport like that with um, voices of poets that were writing around the world. And that was a marvel because you were lifted out of your own locale and then you come back to it refreshed yes. and maybe able to see something you didn't see before that somebody had seen in his or her locale thousands of miles away.
Absolutely, yeah. Mm. There's a lot to be said for that, isn't there? And Fiona, do you, did, did your dad pass that on to you? I mean, that, that love of poetry, or did he have advice to, for you when you were growing up? Did it, did it put you off? I know <laughs> I know. when my dad used to give me advice, it used to put me off hugely. Um, <laughs> but in your case, I don't know. I can't imagine John being too forceful with the advice. What was he like? I think he was always very encouraging in terms of uh, to read poetry and to read literature. And the house was always um, surrounded um, by books. And I think, uh, you know, even as, as children, <clears throat> we never really actually saw dad writing because I think he did much of it, you know, when we were in bed, you know. Uh, you know, after we went to bed at night or before, you know, we got up in the morning because um, you know, the five five of us children <laughs> and the cacophony of five children is not conducive to the writing of fine poetry. No. Um, you know, so uh, I think yeah, he he um, always kind of, um, I suppose, instilled in us the, the, the wonder, the wonder um, of poetry. And I remember being amazed <coughs> as a child how um, something quite ordinary could uh, find its way into poetry. So... You you found your way into one of his poems. We once. did find <laughs> the five of us and my mother found our way into into one of his poems. Uh, and uh, what Jenny is referring to is um, uh, a particular poem inspired by a petition which uh, uh, we as five children uh, wrote along with my mother um, uh, against something Dad was doing. So Dad is an avid beekeeper, and he kept uh, you know uh, acquiring more and more hives. And so these hives, which originally adorned the top of the garden started making their way nearer and nearer the house, uh, much to our horror because as children we um, we didn't realise how benign these creatures were. Benign that is until you take the honey off as we found. Yes. And, uh, and John, did you just think they needed company, the bees or what? Sorry? Did you think the bees needed more company? That they were lonely down the bottom of the garden? Uh, no, it wasn't that I think I had a swarm. Yeah. And when you have a swarm you generally take them away a little bit so that they form a new Ah. family of bees if you wish okay. because if you don't well then they may drift back to the parent hive okay so so there was there was method in his madness there was. <laughs> Otherwise, these, these hives kept, kept advancing down and down further further garden so we decided okay we're going to write a petition we the undersigned leave them uh, where they were um, and uh, I remember being amazed as a child then to see that this had found its way into a poem our petition and yeah. and something that seemed uh, quite as a remove you know uh, as poetry now um, kind of encapsulates the everyday and, and um, was inspired by something that was as, as kind of maybe as as as, uh, as silly as us writing this petition. That didn't work, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the highs marched on. Yeah, actually, that came into a book or was allied to the title <clears throat> of the book, which was Telling the Bees. Okay? Yes, I have it here beside me, actually. Oh, very good, yeah. Yes. And um, um, first of all, I thought that was a very original title until I discovered on a search after, long after I'd written the book, uh, it was the title of some American book of poetry by John Greenleaf Whittier way back oh. in the 1830s. <laughs> but anyway, it comes from the fact that, um, uh, or the old custom, uh, that people used to tell bees of everything that happened in the house. So there was a birth, there was a death, there was whatever you, you told the bees. And um, it was a secret. Sometimes people told secrets to the bees. And it's probably a very ancient um, background. Um, uh, Virgil is associated with beekeeping. Um, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, in a big way. But um, interestingly, uh, during a time of civil war in Rome, he had lots of valuables to hide, you know, precious papers or whatever. And he secreted them all among the bees. Wow. Because he knew that um, 
uh, the, the soldiers searching and ransacking were unlikely to go among <laughs> yes. the beehives. They were probably a bit <laughs> sticky when they came out, emerged, weren't they? <laughs> Uh, so that's that's part of it, I think. Yeah. Wow. That custom has always been there. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't mm. it? Th- th- there's some kind of relationship between poetry and bees. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, telling the bees is a, is a very old um, yeah. phrase. Yeah. That's really, uh, really. And people used to think in the old days that um, if you didn't share your life with the bees, well, then your bees would die. Mm. Um, so that's, I mean, bees die from neglect, you know, they're dying today because of Monsanto and whatever. Yeah. Uh, so it's probably just um, uh, just a saying. But at the same time, there is a close rapport and always has been uh, between um, the world of men and women and the bees. <clears throat> uh, there's a marvellous book called The Sacred Bee. And this deals with the history of bees way back from Egyptian times down to modern times. <clears throat> and uh, in the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, uh, the clerics were fascinated with beekeeping and they saw the image of the hive as a model for human beings working. The only difficulty they found was that instead of the hive being ruled by a king bee, which was the Pope. <laughs> it was actually a queen bee. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. That would throw so, the cat amongst the pigeons to so, mix our metaphors. So suddenly all that imagery disappeared overnight. Yes. You know, so it's quite funny. That <laughs> is, isn't it? It is. Language changes over time to suit That's the right. purpose, I suppose. Yeah. And actually, uh, just about your, your own use of language, John, um, it's been said, you know, that, that there's a kind of a tactile quality to, to uh, the way that you use words and the way that you use language. Um, and I suppose, you know, just getting an insight there into into the research that you've done and you know, all the ver- the variety of things that you seem to know and bring into your poetry. It's fascinating. But talk to us a little bit about technique because I know that you use persona and, you know, you have strong narrative threads throughout a lot of your poetry as well. You know, do you think about the idea first? Do you think about, you know, how, how does... How does your poetry kind of form itself? Um, do you work really hard on, on a line or are you trying to get an idea down and then come back to it and, and kind of hone it and, and fix it up? Or what way do you approach your poetry? Well, usually for me, the poem um, <clears throat> uh, will show itself in the first line. Mm. And that gives you the rhythm of the poem. And the rest is like uncovering uh, as you would the roots of a tree or a shrub, the rest of the roots, you know. Um, and But it, once you have the first line, or once the first line comes, that determines everything that follows. Yeah, It's almost like Emily Dickinson's The Soul Selects Her Own Society. You know, this is the first line and everything else follows that first line. Right. Unless you want to turn everything upside down, which of course you can do. Yes. All the time. You can do that in a sonnet, you know, between the eight lines and the six lines. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but mainly the, or sometimes you can have the finish line and the end line and work your way back to the beginning. Yeah. You know. And I mean, you're prolific in the amount of stuff that you that you produce. Do you ever get stuck? Do you ever get to a point where you go, I can't do anything with this. I'm going to have to leave it and then come back to it two years later or never come back to it again? Uh, no, I... I, I don't have that problem. That's <laughs> my, great, isn't it? My problem is the other direction. 
Right. Uh, I'm <clears throat> reading about an artist that I love at the moment. That's Hokusai. He's a very famous um, Japanese um, uh, painter. Mm-hmm. And he had his most prolific period in his old age, right? And he was doing so much artwork that as soon as he finished one piece, he'd throw it out the window and start the next one. And then his daughter would have to gather up all his pieces. <laughs> Build a new house for all the stuff he was doing. A new job for me. Yeah, exactly, Fiona, now. So whether it was to deter the neighbours <laughs> or ward off evil spirits, I don't know. But uh, I find that attitude, uh, I find that fascinating because um, there is... Um, uh, the Asian, um advice, and that is that unless it seems like a moment's thought, all your stitching and unstitching has been not. Yeah. But you have to bring poems to that level as well. So very often, OK, you'll get poems so far uh, and that's your first draft. And then you think it's great and you go back to it the next morning, the cold light of day and you <laughs> start working on it again. You know, but I think the important thing, as I said to students, was that you have to be in empathy with the piece. Mm. If you turn against the poem, don't touch it. Yes. Because you're going to do damage to it. We have lots of examples of that in established poets like Wordsworth, for instance. Um, have it in Tennyson as well. You know, they were struggling when they were young with their poetry was great, the young pantheistic Wordsworth. And then when they won fame and fortune at the end, they said, well, I must look at that again. Yeah. <laughs> And um, they change a punctuation. They showed an insensitivity towards line endings and the whole force of what they're writing when they were young. They tried to rationalise it, mm. uh, which was a mistake. Yeah. And well, it's a mistake in a sense that the later versions read much poorer than the original versions. And it's interesting because we did a podcast on creative writing actually with uh, Margaret O'Brien, our colleague who, who teaches it on, on the English programme. And she said that very same thing about the fact that she, what she tries to encourage amongst her students is an empathy for their own writing and then an empathy for other people's as well. And that actually, if you if you are kind to yourself and what you produce, that you are more able rather than less able to, to make it better, you know. Um, and, you know, what you're talking about is, you know, re- when you revise something that you produce at a particular moment in time, that there's something valid about that, that you have to be careful not to not to erase what you, the, the, the nice thing or the, the, the goodness about it, you know. OK, that's one aspect to it. Mm. There's the other aspect, and that is you have to be your own critic as well. Of course. Coming behind you, not in front of you. Yeah, which you, right? this was mainly for yeah. first drafts actually that yeah, she no, was talking about the produ- yes, yeah. production of, of that first kind of few marks on the page so that yeah. you don't frighten yourself away from it. Yeah. In fact, uh, all the better if you have two minds. Mm. Uh, here I'm thinking of um, the early Elliot writing the drafts of The Wasteland mm. and um, Pound reading these as they were sent to him and Pound um, making comments or ticks that's okay. Uh, that's dreadful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you do need uh, either a pound at your shoulder mm. or to be your own inner critic and quietly discard, you know, something yes. you've, you've done. And you get better, better with that over time as well, don't you? Like just with practice to be able to look with a fresh eye on your own work and say, actually, you the, do, day, the day after it doesn't look so, but, so um, beautiful. Uh, a big issue is the writer's independence. And I feel very strong about this. Mm. Um a writer really should write um, well for his for you know people or a person, but he shouldn't write or he or she shouldn't write for an editor. Yeah, 
Unfortunately, I think some poets have their editor in mind when they're writing so that they'll get their work published or they know what an editor likes. Right, yeah. And I think that can be deadly mm. because you, um, you betray your own gift for doing something unique. Mm. And I think young writers have to be very careful about that. That what, <clears throat> as Hopkins put it, um, what I say is me, what I cry is me, for that I came. Yes, to be authentic. And let, let nobody interfere with that. Yeah. To and if people don't like it, they don't like it. But I mean, it's your voice, OK? It is, absolutely. And I think, you know, what's really important and what you talked to us about um, the last time as well was, uh, and what I want to make sure I include in this podcast, seen as the last one <laughs> got a bit messed up, but was the way that you can use poetry in, in a social sense as well, you know, for, for activist purposes. And you talked to us about your um, activism with Pussy Riot over in Russia. So can you tell us a little bit about that as well? I mean, what you did, I suppose, in relation to to poetry and trying to help uh, the kind of collective pursuit of justice for for these women um, and how, you know, how you found it, how you... um Well, I suppose you bring a whole life experience to whatever you're writing about. Um, uh, you don't have to think about your life experience. It mm. just crystallises in your response, which can be either bad or good. And I think, first of all, as a person, you have to be your own severest critic. And I use the word interrogate. You have to interrogate yourself to see if any of my views uh, are discriminatory, mm-hmm. if any of my views, if implemented, would hurt other people. So I've been in the Christian tradition, let's say, although um, I wouldn't have any truck with any church. I'd yes. go back to the original. OK. And uh, with Pussy Riot, that their famous escapade in the um, St. Basil's in, in Moscow. Right? It was a time uh, of a presidential election. Putin was coming to power again. And he was outlawing all opposition. So it was a bad situation. It was like going back to Stalin times. Stalin is his icon, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. And we see what's happening these days with the awful carry on in Syria. Yes. Um, uh, But Pussy Riot, anyway, objected to this. But what they objected to specifically was to the backing of Putin by the Orthodox Church because um, Kirill... Patriarch Curl and Putin himself, they were buddies in the KGB, uh, which is neither here nor there. But they both got into positions of great power in Russia. And it was when Curl came out uh, with a statement um, in his church to say that any opposition to Putin or any marches against uh, uh, Putin were in fact marches against the Orthodox you know, people's ears began to prick up and pussy rights ears in particular um, were very anti-establishment anyway. And I said, look, enough is enough. Uh, and out of that came the 82nd bash in St. Basil's, mm-hmm. where it was prayer to Our Lady, rid us of Putin. You know, yeah. <laughs> so it was Incred- an incredibly brave and risky thing. Oh, it was very risky. And they knew that as well. <clears throat> and... Um, uh, they were immediately followed um, by uh, the religious authorities and also by the state authorities because the two of them were acting hand in glove at the time. And uh, for me, 
um, it evoked a known memory, and that was of Yeshua. I, I don't use Jesus, for instance. I use the word Yeshua. That was what his father and mother called him in the ancient um, Jewish tradition. That was his real name, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and his escapade in the temple, when he had enough as well. In other words, he saw the state that was Herod, and then there were the Romans, um, and then there was a the religion at the time, all hand in glove, um, oppressing the people. And he led a day's resistance in the temple. That's only through modern research we find it was a day. It wasn't just a blow in, a blow out, upset a few tables and chairs, whipped the bankers around a bit. It was a full day's occupation in the temple. And I said, here we are again. You know, we've we've come 2,000 years later. We have the same scenario. So uh, immediately that stuck in my mind. And then it was all over the headlines. It was on Facebook, Swarm, and uh, we saw them being sentenced and Putin asked the court to go easy on them. And everybody knew what that meant. It meant give them the full treatment. And for uh, Nadia, that meant Mordavia, which was the most notorious women's prison in Russia. And she was sent there. And there were different groups then writing for the um, freedom of Nadia. It was freedom of expression mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Uh, but they were charged with blasphemy. And yes, she was charged with blasphemy. That's what brought him down yeah. uh, in, in biblical times. Okay. Um, so we all kind of made our comments or whatever. And because I, w- I was a writer, I started writing sonnets in response to this. Okay. And it meant a total change of style for me because, um, you know, Facebook it works on 24 hours. OK, somebody's posting something in Australia, Europe, a certain time, you see that. Somebody's posting in America, you see that uh, at, at a different time. And we were sending in our responses. And if the uh, Russian authorities are sensitive to anything, they are sensitive to comments about themselves being made in the social media. Mm. And really, our aim was to make sure that the girl uh, herself and Gorsas Masha too, uh, that they weren't um, killed in the process because there's no doubt, I think, that they're treatment in prison. When they got in, uh, when Nadi went to Mordavia, all the rights of the existing prisoners were stopped and uh, one finds most notorious murderers in this women's prison, right? And immediately turned on Nadia, right? But she managed to keep her head down for a while. And then suddenly the prisoner said, well, hang on a moment now, you know, something behind this, you know? Mm. And then when that didn't work, the authorities forced her into 24 hours hard labour outside in severest weather mm. conditions. She came down with pneumonia, but she still didn't die. It went on from that then to uh, forced labour round the clock <clears throat> inside and she managed to survive that. But lucky enough, um, to the marvels of modern technology, there were occasional pictures or photographs coming through Instagram or whatever uh, out to the wider world and that sparked up protests all over the place. And out of those uh, protests then, uh, make quite a long story short, it became obvious to Putin that this woman is more uh, trouble uh, inside prison than she'd be out. So eventually she was freed. OK, but not after, not before there was this notorious long journey and many prisoners in Russia 
uh, are never heard of again after or what happens, whatever happens during the long train journeys. But she survived uh, all that. Because and people like you were freed. watching. Yeah, so the, the world was watching. Yeah, yeah. And then it became very, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, for me, poetry as polemic. There also was an anthology produced um, by Kat Lucas. She's a member of Penn International and um, poets with some established record were invited to submit work on Pussy Riot. And I submitted a piece and then she published that. Okay. Mm. And the piece was reviewed in, uh, in um, some uh, review and my poem came in for um, uh, some attention. <laughs> and the <laughs> critic's view was, well, this is all very wordy now. <laughs> right. <laughs> <coughs> Uh, but the message was, if you really want to support the women, go and punk it with the women. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Either shut up or, you know. Uh, Did you get uh, a, 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 mo- so, a, mohawk anyway. hair, a mohawk haircut and some chains? <laughs> right, yes. That's what you should have done. So poetry had to have that a kind of a equivalent uh, feel to it. Mm. So my my work changed overnight. <laughs> then it was either shut up or put up, you know, put up or shut up, and um, uh, then the style radically changed then to meet that, which was kind of revolution for me. Yeah, and, and you must have found that really interesting then to try and adapt your your style to suit the. Well, the it, I didn't have time to find it interesting. <laughs> uh, I, I just had to keep going full belt yeah. at it, and the only worry I had was that you're posting these things. Do you keep a record of them somewhere on your desktop? Yes, and there, there's some poems that if you do them, then you're rushing something else, and that was the end of them. Or you'd find them <laughs> every months later lurking in some corner. That um, really, yeah. So it was, um, it was fascinating like that. And I suppose the highlight for me was, on a purely personal level, was um, the photograph of Nadia that uh, came to public attention uh, when she was in her last place of detention, and that was actually in a hospital, and um, where she was nursing, and she was combing her hair, and her father saw this and he posted it. And um, I wrote a poem on that. Mm. And suddenly I saw this like from Andre. <laughs> Her father. Her father you know. Yeah. So that really made my day, if you wish. That's you the know. best review of all. It was, yeah. yeah. It? So, um, And then when she was out and she's free and she's now, of course, a great agitator across the world for prisoners' rights. Um well, then the groups disbanded and she went about her other life. She took over her, fa- you know, she had a, a young daughter, Gera, uh, went back to some semblance of family-like life again. And uh, she's just a good Christian, if you use that term, mm. because we know in the final shake-up, um, like in uh, under the concept of judgment, you won't be asked whether he went to Mass on Sunday. <laughs> he didn't. Yes. You'll be asked what you did for prisoners. Mm. Yeah. And you've One of the essential questions. And that's what she and Masha are attempting to do, not only in Russia, but in the US, which, of course, is notorious. Prisons are notorious. Uh, so she's all over the world following um, that work now. You know, she's like 11 in the community, to use yes. the old phrase. Yeah. yeah. And you've done your part too, though. I mean, it's, it's amazing what you were saying to our students about the part that they can play, <coughs> the role that they can play with writing as well. Yeah, well, uh, the um, I think myself um, that poetry, a lot of poetry today, is really very narcissistic. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of it is navel gazing and um, uh, very inward looking and um, it's failing in what it should be doing in my view although you can't tell a port what to do <laughs> port will do whatever he or she wants to do you know that, that, that's absolute uh, but there are so many horrific things happening that um, poets should be clued in much more than they are and a lot of the stuff that's being written is extremely academic and dry mm. And uh, apart from not having any great musical value to go back to what I was saying at the, be uh, at the beginning, I just ask, you know, why bother? Yeah. If I, and that's why I go, for many years, I, I go to the lyrics uh, that one find in C CDs by young um, uh, singers. And I find the real poetry there. I was talking about a young man called Dalton, what is it, Trapetoni, the yes. last day to the students. And yeah. he is a unique talent, a young Texan, right? And uh, the work that he is coming out with is extraordinary. And uh, he has one site where he has 50 of his lyrics. And not only does he give you the version, one version, he gives you different endings or different lines, one as good as the other. OK, mm. and amazing. I I love to listen to a song that I like over and over and over. Yeah. Again, they'll know that in the family. They do, absolutely. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Fields of Gold uh, being played over by Sting over and over. And over. I think you were writing Tronini, Blades of Grass. Yeah, but come back to... Yeah. But come back to that. You go back to, to Dalton a moment, right? Uh, I was listening to his song called Open Book. And he sang that at 15 different concerts. And each time he sang it, it was a different version. So much of that I had to go up and check the screen. Is this singing the same song still? Wow, yeah. So that's for me is brilliance. Yes. That you can be a so on top of your material. You can adapt it to the person you are now because we all keep changing. We're not the person we were as say half an hour ago, even the cells in our body keep changing. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a very important philosophical view by Kierkegaard that we're always in constant motion or change. So we need to reflect that in our work then. Yes. And uh, that's what I find, what I find uh, unique about him. I think what Fiona's referring to <laughs> is one of my favourite uh, lyrics was Sting, Fields of Gold. Yes. <clears throat> and we're all off to Cork <laughs> for day in Cork. And I asked him at the outset, would you like to listen to Fields of Gold? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once, please. You should have qualified your response. But it was Fields of Gold all the way down. <laughs> on repeat. Oh, my goodness. Go on uh, as well. So, unfortunately, my recording of Fields of Gold disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> Buried with the bees in the bottom of the garden. <laughs> I, I think actually Fields of Gold, I think that could have been the time you were writing Tronini Blades of Grass, that collection, was it? I forget now, but yeah. this used to happen. Yeah. Um, a favourite movie of mine was Shane. Oh, yes. My father's favourite movie. <laughs> <laughs> I see it's an overlapping going And on. my last image of Shane, the, the um, it was the, not the CD, but the, the video, yeah. was being water pistoled in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Oh, Fiona. <laughs> this great man sitting beside you. What have you done? What have you done? I don't think it was me doing the water pistoling. I think it was one of the others. Yeah, it was nothing to do with you. Um, but actually, to move on to you for a minute, for a second, we were talking about, you know, the polemic nature of poetry and, and, and 
you know, I know you're interested in the mo- at the moment in Margaret Ashwood's poetry, um, and I wouldn't be all that familiar with with it. I've read um, I've read a number of her poems, but you know, there, there are, there's shock value in what in some of what she does, isn't there? Um, what is it that interests you about about her poetry? So she's a poet I've just come back to recently because um, I have a final year student doing a project on her work and for me I suppose the most powerful um, pieces that she's written are those that attempt to inculcate um, moral consciousness particularly around issues such as torture or female circumcision you know itself a misnomer um, and so uh, the poems that she writes are you know they're very visceral very evocative um, and if they don't make you feel they make you think I think at the, mm. at the very least um, so there's a particular poem, um, footnote to the Amnesty Report on torture, I think, that is um, particularly um, powerful. Um, and in that poem, she depicts a man whose job it is to clean the room um, every day after acts of torture. So she depicts um, very visually, um, you know, the shed teeth um, and even references, you know, aspects such as the antiseptic. And so, of course, that's just a sanitising agent. But for me, at least, um, it also evokes images of medics um, in, in torture chambers all over the world, because in, in many instances of torture, um, there are medics standing by to ensure that the person doesn't die, not to save the person for their own sake, but rather to ensure that more information can be extracted. So um, so I found um, I find her work very, very powerful in that regard. Um, and when I was reading that poem, um, it reminded me of W.H. Auden's poem Musée, um, in which he depicts um, a painting by Brule, which is the fall of Icarus. And Icarus, um, a figure from myth, um, you know, with his wings made of feathers and wax, flew to near the sun and the sun melted the wax. And so um, he fell into the sea. And drowned. So in Odin's poem, he depicts this painting by Bruel. And what you see is these white legs disappearing into the water. But the ship that witnesses this seems calmly on. The man who is plowing the field, who has seen the legs disappear into the water, also goes about his business because they all have something better to do than to attend to the fact or to do anything about the fact that somebody is drowning before their eyes. Um, and for me, then, you know, poetry, I think is a really powerful medium because of the way in which poets use language mm. um, of, how, of how powerful you know, it can be. Absolutely. And it's it would really encourage you to go to go back to her poetry, actually, you know, as Absolutely, just yeah. having touched and loads of it is available freely on the Internet Absolutely, as well. Yeah. You know. um, do you know what? One last thing that I want, because we should really finish, but I just don't want to stop talking now um, or don't want to stop listening, rather. Um, it, one other thing, uh, John, one last question that I wanted to ask you was um, about about Seagull Ross because we I, we were talking about well there's a few a few things I suppose Seamus Heaney once famously described you as Ireland's most undeservedly neglected poet <laughs> which is a, a funny kind of a compliment I guess to, to receive um, but I mean he, he obviously thought really highly of what you were doing what you're producing and there's a similarity in, in that both of you have this kind of affinity with Scandinavia in one respect or another your book um, Postponing and Aspergi is that right? Aspergi yep. Aspergi I, I always get it wrong um, was really interesting to me because I love the music of Sigur Rós. Now, I wouldn't have been all that aware of their lyrics, really, um, because I couldn't understand them. But, um, you know, you you take the idea of, of what they're doing and, you know, convert that into a book of poetry. Um, and it was really, really interesting to me to kind of think about the relationship, I suppose, of 
between Waterford and, and you know, Scandinavia, if you like, um, Iceland in particular, you're interested in. Um, but also about the, the you know, some of the things that we see recurring in, in Seamus Heaney's North, you know, the, the, the value of the poet as a witness, um, the poet as, you know, being respected in our society as somebody who has something to tell us. Um, and, you know, a few of those things really kind of sprang to mind when I was reading some of your poetry, but also um, this idea that if, you know, if you have something to, to really connect with, something that really inspires you and lifts you up, like the music of Seeger Ross, that you can suddenly start to see all these connections between people. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about that, about that collection? Well, that collection, uh, 64 pages, <clears throat> it's a part of a much bigger totality of poems, um, following Sigur Ross, if you use, use that term, and it grows of my um, uh, hearing them and seeing them on the DVD Heima. Heima in Icelandic is home. Mm. And as uh, a group of young musicians, they were struggling like many other young musicians and suddenly they managed to make a breakthrough. It wasn't so much in Iceland, it was as far away as in Japan. And in the US, people began to <laughs> like their music in peculiar, in peculiar way. And suddenly news filtered back to Iceland. And they, they began to be played a lot, the, the music um, they're into... It was very much um, uh, music of, to use a hackneyed term, the soul, right? Mm. Uh, or the, the, the inner person. And Amina, the group of four women with whom they played, um, when they were asked about this, they said, uh, and they were the professional musicians, they were trained musicians, they said, it doesn't matter whether you're trained or not. Even when you're trained, you have to throw away the music. Mm. And you have to keep playing until it's part of yourself. And only then will it be true. And you have to make whatever alterations you have to make along the way to be true to you, uh, your, your inner person. OK, so that was the, I suppose, the force of the music came across to me. I know that's rather round, about rather, rather heavy. Um, but they were a group of four very unassuming uh, young musicians. And they made it abroad. They, they, you know, their first recordings were selling well, modestly. OK. And to thank people in Iceland, uh, particularly their families, uh, for supporting them because there were difficulties uh, along the way. They went back to Iceland and they decided to play a series of concerts free around Iceland a no big hullabaloo they came to a village um, uh, they'd seek out the local hall if it um, had electrical equipment okay we'll use that if there were local singers you know they'll come in as well and musicians so that's how it happened and even not only under roofs but also out in the open in fields um uh, right round Iceland and okay it is sort of high summer so they were guaranteed um, 
fairly good weather because Iceland it has good summers, believe it or not, better mm-hmm. summers than we have in Ireland. <laughs> and I came across their work um, in the DVD Haima and it was while I was recovering from open heart surgery, so I time in my hands and uh, the more I played it, the more I liked it. And I just kept playing it night after night when it's down. <laughs> Fiona was glad she was living elsewhere. In, a, co- in a corner, right? Uh, away from everybody. <laughs> Out in a sunroom. And <laughs> just building. And then I suddenly found myself jotting notes about what I liked about this. And then the pages filled up and I could hardly read what I'd written because you'd have to scribble something as soon as it would come. And suddenly poems began to form uh, out of this. There was famous concert at Dupuvik. That's in northern um, Iceland. And this was in a deserted fish uh, factory, fish tank. And what happened was in the 30s, um, Iceland uh, overfished its herrings so that they disappeared. So it was the first lesson they got in how not to handle nature. Okay? Mm-hmm. And this fish tank, this village was deserted and cigarettes were going around and they climbed into this place, into this deserted fish tank. <laughs> and they, they started to sing and suddenly the acoustic was just extraordinary in this place. And um, uh, they did a concert in in a deserted fish tank. This is a huge <laughs> um, uh, inner enclosure like, like a theatre. Uh, and the joke in, Uf- in sorry in Iceland was that year. What was the best concert this year? Oh, the one in the <laughs> in the, the Iceland the, the fish tank <laughs> of a Juvik. You know they have a very droll droll sense of humour. Uh, so that's just uh, one example. Uh, there was uh, there were protests against a dam that was being built by the Americans in Iceland. That was an acoustic concert. Uh, they played all over the place. And one of the concerts was in Asprigi, that's in in um, uh, northern Iceland, and it was their final concert. And Asprigi is quite extraordinary, absolutely beautiful spot. And uh, uh, there's a major celebration there every year, one of the festival days, and they played that uh, as a concert. It's Bedlam. And uh, George said, you know, it was bizarre because you had kids running amok over the stage, under the stage. <laughs> it, it was, that's what I love about Iceland, you know. Uh, it's so informal mm. and nobody bothers. Uh, what I was amazed at in Halgrim's Kirke, which is the main cathedral, a great place of light. I don't normally like going into cathedrals, but it's an extraordinary place. It was a kid's playground and they were there on the floor with their paintings and whatever, whatever. It was just like walking into a massive kitchen. Wow. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary. And hearing the music, uh, I mean, Sigur Ross is not unique. Sigur Ross suddenly didn't descend out of the sky. They say that every young person in Iceland is a member of at least 14 bands. <laughs> That's the Icelandic joke. So they have an extraordinary um, talent, um, you know, for for performance. And I only hope that Waterford, because of its North connections, really uh, goes after the young musicians of Iceland. Because there are so many bands there, so many Sigur Rosses, that all they are looking for is opportunities to play. And what a better way to reactivate the North connection 
mm. uh, than to bring these uh, young people to Waterford for spree or whatever the festival than have them play. That would be a dream of mine. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Yeah. It would. A, and then you're actually idea. hearing the original Norse because Norse was the spoken language of Waterford, remember? Mm-hmm. And Waterford was a city when the Norse were here. Uh, and one of the great pleasures of launching that book in Waterford was uh, to read it in the Viking Triangle uh, within the city walls and most of the titles are Norse. Now they're Norse via Sigur Ross. <laughs> yes. So my knowledge of, of all Norse is very limited <laughs> and Icelandic as well but I use the titles and um, uh, again if you follow the Sigur Ross website um, uh, you will find the translations of the songs you know uh, translations and also phonetic um, you know attempts at how to, how to pronounce them. Oh, yes. But that would be a hope of mine, that this would be active, because a lot is made of the Viking Triangle. Now, you must activate that mm. uh, to include real living Norse, or people who speak Norse. And Icelandic today is um, first cousin to the old Norse. Fantastic idea. And yeah. I think we're, we're going to actually, we're going to end with that fantastic idea. I hope, wouldn't it be great if somebody was listening from Spree? I know a few people in Spree. I'm going to send this on to them and say, hey, what do you think? We'll help. We'll help. Um, so, John, what a great idea. Um, but also, thank you so much for joining us uh, and to Fiona as well for, for coming in here twice, not once, but twice <laughs> to record this podcast. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much as well for, for dedicating your time to helping our students. I think they got so much out of it on our English day um, so we might we might see you again at another stage to, to, <laughs> well, to, yeah. to, to extract some more of that uh, knowledge of a pleasure yep. so thank you both thank you for much, joining Jenny. me thank you.